Chapter Thirteen of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods, by Ferdinand Ossendowski. Chapter Thirteen: Mysteries, Miracles, and a New Fight. In the evening of the same day, we arrived at the sacred lake of Terinur a sheet of water eight kilometres across, muddy and yellow, with low, unattractive shores studded with large holes. In the middle of the lake lay what was left of a disappearing island. On this were a few trees and some old ruins. Our guide explained to us that two centuries ago the lake did not exist, and that a very strong Chinese fortress stood here on the plain. A Chinese chief in command of the fortress gave offence to an old lama who cursed the place and prophesied that it would all be destroyed. The very next day the water began rushing up from the ground, destroyed the fortress, and engulfed all the Chinese soldiers. Even to this day, when storms rage over the lake, the waters cast up on the shores the bones of men and horses who perished in it. This Terinur increases its size every year, approaching nearer and nearer to the mountains. Skirting the eastern shore of the lake, we began to climb a snow-capped ridge. The road was easy at first, but the guide warned us that the most difficult bit was there ahead. We reached this point two days later, and found there a steep mountainside thickly set with forest and covered with snow. Beyond it lay the lines of eternal snow, ridges studded with dark rocks set in great banks of the white mantle that gleamed bright under the clear sunshine. These were the eastern and highest branches of the Tanu-Ola system. We spent the night beneath this wood and began the passage of it in the morning. At noon the guide began leading us by zigzags, in and out, but everywhere our trail was blocked by deep ravines, great jams of fallen trees and walls of rock caught in their mad tobogganings from the mountaintop. We struggled for several hours, wore out our horses, and, all of a sudden, turned up at the place where we had made our last halt. It was very evident our Soyot had lost his way, and on his face I noticed marked fear. "'The old devils of the cursed forest will not allow us to pass,' he whispered with trembling lips. "'It is a very ominous sign. We must return to Karga to the Noyon.' But I threatened him, and he took the lead again, evidently without hope or effort to find the way. Fortunately, one of our party, a Urianhai hunter, noticed the blazes on the trees, the signs of the road which our guide had lost. Following these, we made our way through the wood, came into and crossed a belt of burned larch timber, and beyond this dipped again into a small live forest bordering the bottom of the mountains, crowned with the eternal snows. It grew dark, so that we had to camp for the night." The wind rose high and carried in its grasp a great white sheet of snow that shut us off from the horizon on every side, and buried our camp deep in its folds. Our horses stood round like white ghosts, refusing to eat or to leave the circle round our fire. The wind combed their manes and tails. Through the niches in the mountains it roared and whistled. From somewhere in the distance came the low rumble of a pack of wolves, punctuated at intervals by the sharp individual barking that a favourable gust of wind threw up into high staccato. As we lay by the fire, the Soyot came over to me and said, "'Noyon, come with me to the oboe. 
I want to show you something.' We went there and began to ascend the mountain. At the bottom of a very steep slope was laid up a large pile of stones and tree-trunks, making a cone of some three metres in height. These oboe are the Lamayite sacred signs set up at dangerous places, the altars to the bad demons, rulers of these places. Passing Soyots and Mongols pay tribute to the spirits by hanging on the branches of the trees and the oboe hatik, long streamers of blue silk, shreds torn from the lining of their coats, or simply tufts of hair cut from their horses' manes, or by placing on the stones lumps of meat or cups of tea and salt. "'Look at it,' said the Soyot. "'The hatiks are torn off. The demons are angry. They will not allow us to pass, Noyan.' He caught my hand and with supplicating voice whispered, "'Let us go back, Noyon, let us. The demons do not wish us to pass their mountains. For twenty years no one has dared to pass these mountains, and all bold men who have tried have perished here. The demons fell upon them with snowstorm and cold. Look, it is beginning already. Go back to our Noyon, wait for the warmer days, and then—' I could not listen further to the soyot, but turned back to the fire, which I could hardly see through the blinding snow. Fearing our guide might run away, I ordered a sentry to be stationed for the night to watch him. Later in the night I was awakened by the sentry, who said to me, "'Maybe I'm mistaken, but I think I heard a rifle.' What could I say to it? Maybe some stragglers like ourselves were giving a sign of their whereabouts to their lost companions— or perhaps the sentry had mistaken for a rifle-shot the sound of some falling rock or frozen ice and snow. Soon I fell asleep again, and suddenly saw in a dream a very clear vision. Out on the plain, blanketed deep with snow, was moving a line of riders. They were our pack-horses, our Kalmuk and the funny pied horse with the Roman nose. I saw us descending from the snowy plateau into a fold in the mountains, here some larch trees were growing, close to which gurgled a small open brook. Afterwards I noticed a fire burning among the trees, and then woke up. It grew light. I shook up the others and asked them to prepare quickly, so as not to lose time in getting under way. The storm was raging. The snow blinded us and blotted out all traces of the road. The cold also became more intense. At last we were in the saddles. The Soyot went ahead trying to make out the trail. As we worked higher, the guide less seldom lost the way. Frequently we fell into deep holes covered with snow. We scrambled up over slippery rocks. At last the Soyot swung his horse round and, coming up to me, announced very positively, "'I do not want to die with you, and I will not go further.' My first motion was the swing of my whip back over my head. I was so close to the promised land of Mongolia that this Soyot, standing in the way of fulfilment of my wishes, seemed to me my worst enemy. But I lowered my flourishing hand. Into my head flashed a quite wild thought. "'Listen,' I said. "'If you move your horses, you will receive a bullet in the back, and you will perish not at the top of the mountain, but at the bottom. And now I will tell you what will happen to us. When we shall have reached these rocks above—' The wind will have ceased, and the snowstorm will have subsided. The sun will shine as we cross the snowy plain above, and afterwards we shall descend into a small valley, 
where there are larches growing, and a stream of open running water. There we shall light our fires and spend the night. The Soyot began to tremble with fright. "'Noyon has already passed these mountains of Darkhatola?' he asked in amazement. "'No,' I answered. "'But last night I had a vision, and I know that we shall fortunately win over this ridge.' "'I will guide you!' exclaimed the Soyot, and whipping his horse led the way up the steep slope to the top of the ridge of eternal snows. As we were passing along the narrow edge of a precipice, the Soyot stopped and attentively examined the trail. "'Today many shod horses have passed here,' he cried through the roar of the storm. "'Yonder on the snow the lash of a whip has been dragged. These are not Soyots.' The solution of this enigma appeared instantly. A volley rang out. One of my companions cried out as he caught hold of his right shoulder. One pack-horse fell dead with a bullet behind his ear. We quickly tumbled out of our saddles, lay down behind the rocks, and began to study the situation. We were separated from a parallel spur of the mountain by a small valley, about one thousand paces across. There we made out about thirty riders already dismounted and firing at us. I had never allowed any fighting to be done until the initiative had been taken by the other side. Our enemy fell upon us unawares, and I ordered my company to answer. "'Aim at the horses!' cried Colonel Ostrovsky. Then he ordered the Tartar and Soyot to throw our own animals. We killed six of theirs and probably wounded others, as they got out of control. Also our rifles took toll of any bold man who showed his head from behind his rock. We heard the angry shouting and maledictions of red soldiers who shot up our position more and more animatedly. Suddenly I saw our Soyot kick up three of the horses and spring into the saddle of one, with the others in leash behind. Behind him sprang up the Tartar and the Kalmuk. I had already drawn my rifle on the Soyot, but as soon as I saw the Tartar and Kalmuk on their lovely horses behind him, I dropped my gun and knew all was well. The Reds let off a volley at the trio, but they made good their escape behind the rocks, and disappeared. The firing continued more and more lively, and I did not know what to do. From our side we shot rarely, saving our cartridges. Watching carefully the enemy, I noticed two black points on the snow high above the Reds. They slowly approached our antagonists, and finally were hidden from view behind some sharp hillocks. When they emerged from these, they were right on the edge of some overhanging rocks, at the foot of which the Reds lay concealed from us. By this time, I had no doubt that these were the heads of two men. Suddenly these men rose up, and I watched them flourish and throw something that was followed by two deafening roars, which re-echoed across the mountain valley. Immediately a third explosion was followed by wild shouts and disorderly firing among the Reds. Some of the horses rolled down the slope into the snow below, and the soldiers, chased by our shots, made off as fast as they could down into the valley out of which we had come. Afterward, the Tartar told me the Soyot had proposed to guide them around behind the Reds to fall upon their rear with the bombs. When I had bound up the wounded shoulder of the officer, and we had taken the pack off the killed animal, we continued our journey. Our position was complicated. We had no doubt that the Red Detachment came up from Mongolia. Therefore, were there Red troops in Mongolia? What was their strength? Where might we meet them? Consequently, Mongolia was no more the promised land? 
very sad thoughts took possession of us. But nature pleased us. The wind gradually fell. The storm ceased. The sun more and more frequently broke through the scudding clouds. We were travelling upon a high, snow-covered plateau, where in one place the wind blew it clean, and in another piled it high with drifts which caught our horses and held them, so that they could hardly extricate themselves at times. We had to dismount and wade through the white piles up to our waists, and often a man or horse was down and had to be helped to his feet. At last the descent began, and at sunset we stopped in the small, larch grove, spent the night at the fire among the trees, and drank the tea boiled in the water carried from the open mountain brook. In various places we came across the tracks of our recent antagonists. Everything, even nature herself and the angry demons of Darkhatola, had helped us. But we were not gay, because again before us lay the dread uncertainty that threatened us with new and possibly destructive dangers. End of chapter